he passed away when I was 18. And because I was the only person in the family with some experience building websites and deploying them, because I'd done so for a bunch of bands that I'd played in, it kind of fell on me to keep my dad's business going. And whilst I was never able to make a success of his business, I wanted to take everything that I'd learned from that and put it into my own thing. When I was coming up with a name, I'm terrible at naming things actually, but I knew that I wanted it to have a, a nod back to my dad. And so in the end, I just ended up naming it after him and the character that you see on the website that is of course based on my dad. Welcome back to Startups with the Rest of Us. This is episode 597. We are approaching that 600 episode mark. In today's episode of the show, I talk with Ashley Baxter. She's the founder of With Jack, which is located on the interwebs at withjack.co.uk. And their H1 is be a confident freelancer. So With Jack gives peace of mind and protection for UK freelancers through insurance, professional indemnity, public liability, contents, legal expenses, etc. And today, Ashley and I dig into her pretty incredible story about losing her father. She was relatively young and she took over his insurance business and it, it failed. It didn't work out. But how she bounced back started with Jack and the, you know, the successes and the failures, trials and tribulations that have happened since then. It's been a pretty incredible journey. And she actually spoke about it at MicroConf Europe. I believe it was in 2019. So almost three years ago. And she's come so far since then. And, you know, is really pushing, uh, still pushing the boulder up the hill and making progress. But before we dive into that, tickets to MicroConf Remote 4.0 are now on sale. During this event, we're talking all things money. We'll be talking finance for bootstrap founders, covering topics like pricing, budgeting, accounting, financing, and investing. This fully remote and virtual conference takes place May 3rd through the 5th, 2022, from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. daily. Register now at microconfremote.com and use promo code MCMONEY. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ashley Baxter. Ashley Baxter, thanks for joining me on the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's been so long since I last spoke to you. I know. We met at MicroConf Europe 2019. And for some odd reason that I'm still trying to figure out, I never had you on Startups for the Rest of Us. It kind of doesn't make sense to me because I think there's a lot of interesting things to talk about with your story building Jack. You call it Jack or with Jack? I call it with Jack. Okay. And it's at withjack.com. And I would describe it as insurance for freelancers, but you have a tech twist on it. I mean, you're, you're a microconfer, you know, you're a, you're an entrepreneur. It's not like when I think of insurance in the U S it's like there's farmers and it was like my uncle sold insurance and he wore a suit and he had a thing, he had an office in a strip mall. I don't think of you as that. So can you talk to people about like what, what the difference is, like how you're approaching this with a different mindset than perhaps it's typically someone who's brokering insurance? Mm -hmm. I think like originally I really wanted to explore how to improve the whole onboarding experience of getting a quote and buying insurance. I think one of the things we've done quite well that's different to a lot of other providers is that we're super niche. So instead of like all of the kind of big competitors that I'm up against that are selling business insurance, they're trying to do it for estate agents and freelancers as well. 
and accountants, everybody. And you end up getting products that you don't understand how they work. You end up buying products that you never need because that experience has not been tailored for you. So that's kind of where I started was, how can we make this a really pleasant onboarding experience, a really slick experience of getting a quote, buying a policy and do it in a way that because it's so laser focused on creative freelancers, they're getting exactly the products that they need. Got it. So you understand that niche so well. And I said with Jack.com, it's with Jack.co.uk. I apologize. Your H1 is be a confident freelancer. We protect you and yours on the high seas of freelancing. This would, if, if you haven't seen this site before, a listener, you should check it out. The design is like on point and it does not, again, does not feel like traditional insurance site. Did you, are you a designer? Did you design it yourself? I'm not a designer, but I really love good design and technology. And that's the whole reason that I, I didn't get into insurance for that reason. But the whole reason that I ended up kind of sticking around in insurance was because I felt like at the time, uh, things are much better now, but at the time, insurers were not paying any attention to good design and current technology. So I definitely have, I'm not a designer, but I really appreciate good design. I worked with Scott Riley, who's a I don't think he freelances anymore. I think he is in full-time employment now, but he was my designer. So I do have an appreciation for good design. And where does the name come from with Jack? So I named the business after my dad because he was the whole reason that I got into insurance. So when I was like 18 years old, I was at college studying music. I wanted to be a famous drummer. And um, my dad was running an insurance business solely online, focusing specifically on landlords. And he passed away when I was 18. And because I was the only person in the family with some experience building websites and deploying them, because I'd done so for a bunch of bands that I'd played in, it kind of fell on me to keep my dad's business going. And whilst I was never able to make a success of his business, I wanted to take everything that I'd learned from that and put it into my own thing which is with Jack. And when I was coming up with a name, I'm terrible at naming things actually, but I knew that I wanted it to have a, a nod back to my dad. And so in the end, I just ended up naming it after him. And the character that you see on the website, that is of course, based on my dad. That's super cool. Wow. And I, I do want to dig in. You sent me a really nice email with kind of more to that story of basically how you weren't able to make his business work. And I, you use the phrase, you ran it into the ground. That feels a little <laughs> harsh to me, but I do, I do want to cover that. Before we do, I think there's, you know, folks listening might be curious, like what stage are you at with, with Jack? With, with Jack. <laughs> I have to say two with, but you know, I, oftentimes founders come on and a few of them will share MRR, but a lot of them will say, well, I'm profitable, three people on a team or whatever, and, and we're profitable. Um, but what, what can you share to give us an idea of, of where you are? Yeah, so I feel like I'm not 100% happy with where I am with Jack. I feel like it could be a lot further along. There's a lot of positive signs there, like I'm fully supporting myself. I've just brought on somebody to work with me one day a week for the first time. And we are charging ahead towards a really cool milestone with the business where within a few months, we'll have written a million pounds of premium. We're growing every month, so we're heading in the right direction and I, I'm able to live 
this life that I like, like I have this cool little office that I'm in right now. And I have, you know, my, my strength coach that helps me lift heavy weights. And I have my season ticket at a football stadium that I love. So I really like the life that I've built for myself, but I still think with Jack should be a lot further ahead, especially considering the length of time that I've been in business now, but mostly considering how much work I put into this business. I feel like I've not yet seen that return on investment. Yeah, I think most entrepreneurs would echo that statement of, I'm happy with my business, but I wish it was further along. It feels like it should be further along. When you say you've put a lot of work into it, how long have you been full-time on it? Actually, right. I think it might have been just before I spoke at MicroConf. So I was shooting weddings because I used to be a freelance photographer and that's kind of how I funded a lot of the the tech side of things so the website the quote system all that stuff was funded uh, through doing photography and I'm pretty sure I might be wrong it was either 2019 or 2018 that I shot my last wedding I just felt like I'd lost a lot of interest in shooting weddings and it felt very not fair to take people's money when my heart wasn't in it anymore. And I found it a bit soul destroying to be working all week on building with Jack and then kind of missing out your weekends because that's when people get married. So yeah, pretty sure it was 2018 or 2019 that I went full time on with Jack. But with that said, let's just let's discount 2020 from everything since that. Yeah, great during that period. Right. I mean, speaking of your strength coach, I think I saw a picture of you on social media throwing, were you deadlifting? You were throwing a lot of weight. What was that? You hit a PR, right? Personal best. Yeah. So it was 150 kilograms. 330 pounds, 2.2. That's 330 pounds. Holy moly. Yeah. It's like twice what I weigh. My gosh. Is it really? Yeah. So that's so cool. I like being strong. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this is a, a kind of a new thing that I got into because of lockdown and I really missed not being around a barbell because gyms were all locked down here in the UK. And then when they opened back up, I was like, right, this is it. I've missed the barbell so much. I'm I'm going to go hard on that barbell. And uh, yeah, I've really gotten into to deadlifts and back squats and all that fun stuff. It's incredible. There's a lot, I'll just say there were a lot of plates on that bar when I saw it. I was like, oh, I'm impressed. So let's circle back. You had mentioned you are 18 years old. You're dad passes away, which, um, you know, obviously must have just rocked you and your whole family. And I guess, why was it you that stepped in to take over this business? I don't know if you have, you know, if you have siblings or like if your mom or who else was around to do that, but it just feels like at 18, I barely knew which way was up. I mean, I was just doing stupid on the weekends and, you know, like I couldn't have taken over a business. Yeah, I think two reasons. So I do have a sister and she's very, she's very successful. Now she like runs a fashion business and that's her thing, fashion. There was like no crossover whatsoever with my dad's stuff. My mum, she is just not techie in the slightest. So she wouldn't have known what to do. So that's kind of where it, it came to me and the conversation that I had with my dad because he was ill, his heart was working 7%. So it was pretty obvious where things were heading and um, and him and I had had that conversation where he just said to me look you know look after the family and I did that and um, and like I said I had a little bit of experience with building websites just because I'd played in bands from the age of 14 and I feel like that's how a lot of people get into building websites as they start off making them for their bands or their friends bands so I had a little bit of knowledge in that respect but absolutely 
zero understanding of insurance, the audience that my dad was serving, which was landlords. So I had to figure all of that stuff out. And obviously I didn't do that good a job because the business didn't grow. It just gradually went down. Yeah, which is a bummer. And it was, was he an insurance broker as well? Actually, no, he wasn't. The best way to describe him was, I suppose, with our terminology would be more like like an affiliate because he mm, okay. never, I've went on and done the whole, like I've committed at this whole insurance game. I'm like fully authorized and approved by the FCA and all of that boring regulatory stuff. My dad never went down that route. He basically built a bunch of websites, was so good at SEO, he got four, five, six of them ranking on the first page of Google for his chosen keyword. And then people were coming onto the website, clicking a link, and they were getting sent to the insurer that he was referring them to. Legion. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he did He did a, an amazing job of that, just purely through really great Google rankings. Um, but no, he wasn't a broker. Got it. And so that's the difference. Because I was going to say, today you are making a brokerage work. You're you're successful at this. You know, and I was going to ask, what was the difference there? But it sounds like his superpower was SEO. And when you couldn't step into those shoes that, you know, as people have often say on this program, like putting a website or a business on autopilot, usually over time, it, it will decline. It's hard to keep it stable or growing, especially with Google involved, because Google just does tend to, they do updates and they tend to just not delist, but derank things or over time, this stuff just kind of falls off. And if you don't maintain the leads, so there was no recurring revenue, right? It was just a lead is worth X amount. And then if you don't have the same amount of leads next month, then it's, it's declining. Yeah. And the worst part was his timing couldn't have been worse because when he passed away, two massive changes happened in that industry. One was that these comparison websites popped up. I don't know if you get them in the US, but over here, mm-hmm. you've got like go compare, confuse.com, all that stuff. They popped up and suddenly people were flocking to them to buy their insurance. They weren't using Google as much. So that was one thing, one big change that we saw. It was difficult for us to get on those websites because what they do is they show you a list of providers. People are just going to choose the cheapest so then that encouraged this behavior amongst providers where they were driving the price of their insurance right down. So you're only really making money if you bank on that customer sticking with you three, four years. Um, and that's fine for those companies with a big cash flow, but it wasn't fine for us considering we were a small, independent, family-run business and didn't get that recurring revenue. And the second big sucky change was that just as he passed away, Google completely changed their ranking algorithm. And they went from ranking based on factors like keywords to social factors, um, content like blogs and things, the stuff that my dad had never focused on. So not only that, but he did do a little bit of keyword stuffing and we got completely blacklisted. So we went from Wow. Yeah, it was it was it was a really hard time to come into the business because we'd went from that was how he'd made his money and it was a big success and it worked for him to him obviously passing away and me stepping in, having to figure all this stuff out and then having our websites completely removed from the one place that actually brought us business. And I think the big lesson there that we can all take away is to never depend on one channel 
to run your business. Yep. The diversity of incoming leads is a huge issue. And it's it's platform risk in a sense, right? We talk about that a lot of you can build, these days you can build a pretty amazing add-on or kind of an app store app, for the lack of a better term, on, you know, on Shopify, on Heroku, for WordPress, for, you know, there's all these ecosystems that you can build in and you can get traction really quickly because they already have a bunch of traffic to their app stores or to their add-on repositories. And you get search traffic and you can, usually their SEO is not that hard because they're not as sophisticated as Google and you can rank and then you can build a pretty, pretty interesting businesses pretty quickly. The rub comes when you have any modicum of success. And I mean, like it's a half a million, a million a year, you start crossing that line. The provider, the, the main platform takes notice and then they come a knocking. And I've seen it happen to at least one business that was doing several million a year on a platform just get destroyed. And it sucks and it feels like it's not fair, but it's their platform and they can kind of do what they want, you know? And so Google is the same way. How many businesses have you and I seen first or second hand just get destroyed because all of their reliance was on Google? It's, it's unfortunately a common story. Yeah, well, it's it's certainly on, on the positive side, something that I've been able to take into my own business is to make sure that I'm not depending on that as one channel, that it is one channel and we do really well from it, but there has to be, there has to be others too. Yeah. And that was, that's how all the businesses I built always had multiple, except for the very, very smallest ones. But usually I remember even in the days of when I was focusing really hard on drip and wanting to rank for like email service provider, email service software or whatever, it was like 10% of our leads, maybe 10 to 15%. You know, there was a, there was a variety of it. Now I would have loved for that to be better. It would just happen to be really competitive when you're competing with MailChimp and, and Aweber and Infusionsoft. But so it's a trip because if I was in your shoes and I was, I inherited this business from my dad and then I couldn't make it work, I would personally probably run as far away from insurance as I could. But you now are, you got your broker's license, you know, you, you leaned into it. What was that transition like? Did, did you ever have that feeling, like that rage quit table flip feeling of like, I'm going to get the hell out of here and go do something else that has nothing to do with this? No, because I, I really... I like the challenge and I've, I feel like I've had three pretty pivotal moments in my career in insurance. So the first is purely circumstantial, right? It was the circumstances that happened to me. I found myself in insurance because my dad passed away and I was left with his business. The second transitional moment came when I realized I want to stick around and, and give this industry a good shot because I had developed an interest and design and technology, as I'd mentioned. And back then, insurers were just doing a terrible job with bringing their, their processes up to date, up to the current age. And I thought, I want to have a go and see if I can do that, if I can improve the onboarding. If it, We were using software that was, you know, 20 years old, like proper legacy software. So that was the second moment was realizing like, okay, I found something. I'm not interested in insurance at this point, but I found something about this career that I quite enjoy. And I want to see if there's anything more to that. And that's when I started to learn to code sort of more backend stuff and work with designers. But then the third pivotal moment, which is where I'm at right now, I would say, and hopefully there are more pivotal moments to come. It's kind of when I realized that, sure, it's great to build things that look and function nice. But let's be honest, absolutely nobody in the world is walking around today going, wouldn't it be great 
if I could shave 60 seconds off buying insurance, like if it could take me 30 seconds instead of 90 seconds, nobody is walking around thinking that. And so it wasn't really a big problem that I was trying to solve just by making things look nicer and improving the onboarding. Sure, the conversion rate will increase and people will have a nicer time buying insurance and maybe they'll get the products that they actually need and all that lovely stuff. But people are walking around, my audience, freelancers, they're walking around worrying about when their client's going to pay them or worrying about having so much work on their plate, are they going to get that deadline done or having a difficult conversation with a client? So that now I'm at this place with insurance where I want to create products or sell products that actually solve these types of problems. So that's kind of been what, that's how I got into insurance. That's what kept me in insurance was the interest in design and tech. And now I'm really excited about actually coming at it from more of a, a problem perspective like what is it that freelancers want to achieve and what products insurance products can we build to help them get to that desired state right and i bet you're thinking about it in such a unique way because no mainstream broker who serves a bunch of people has any idea who serves a bunch of niches or just is a broad horizontal offering is going to be thinking at it at that level that you are i mean so far i haven't really seen people think about it at that level. Like where I'm even seeing just today, I saw another competitor pop up and I had a look at their website. And again, it's just all, all the same stuff. Like, you know, buy insurance in 60 seconds, manage your policy online, all of that stuff. Like I said, it's nice. It's going to help you, but it, it's not, that's not why people are buying insurance. We have to understand the reasons why they're getting a policy. And for us, that's why the whole ethos with Jack is to help you be a confident freelancer. And believe it or not, I wholeheartedly believe that insurance can help you be a confident freelancer. Yeah, for sure. And it, it, it's interesting. I mean, something I we talked a little bit offline, but I was going to bring up is this concept of a vitamin versus an aspirin. And vitamin businesses are, we all know we should take our vitamins. We know we should eat our spinach. But if there's not impetus or like a push to do it, I don't know, maybe I'm not going to buy insurance this month because, you know, nothing bad happened and there's just nothing to push me to do it versus aspirin. It's like, oh my gosh, my hair is on fire. I need a way to record a podcast. So I'm going to sign up for Squadcast because it's a desperate burning need that I have today, right? You're in a vitamin business and that that's tough, right? And how, how have you thought about that? Because I imagine that might be part of, you talked about it's not where you want it to be. The business isn't where you want it to be. And have you ever thought, well, maybe it, that's just the way these go because they are vitamins in essence? Yeah, 100%. What I've noticed is that insurance, in my opinion, is the best thing in the world when it works. But only 5% of our customers actually make a claim. So you've got 95% of people who are buying a product that on a practical level, they'll never have to use. And I do believe that every freelancer benefits on a, an emotional, aspirational level, because like I said, it helps you be a confident freelancer because you can go into projects and be a bit more confrontational with clients who are maybe going to try to take advantage of you because you know that if they do ever take things that little bit further, you have a, have a team of people in the background ready to help you. But let's be honest, most people don't ever think they'll find themselves in a situation where they need to use their insurance and 95% of them are correct. And we know that there are like 2 million freelancers in the UK. So it's a, a decent sized market. I would guess that 75% of them are uninsured. And so the difficulty that I've had is not just selling a product, but it's been trying to educate the market about why they need this product. 
that's the bit that I'm finding really difficult. And I agree with you. I think that's why I'm not getting the growth that I, I want. The way that I'm kind of thinking about things right now is, like I said, we've got a bunch of customers that insurance is, is great when it works, but there are it only works when a, a fairly specific set of circumstances happen, which is either a threat of legal action or somebody trying to recover money from you. So we know that there are all of these other freelancers experiencing different problems that are falling through the cracks. That for me is the missing piece of the puzzle. I need to figure out what to create, might be insurance related, might not be, or what to build that helps the freelancers that are falling through the cracks. There's 100% a missing piece of the puzzle with my business right now. And I'm trying to figure out what that is. I haven't figured it out yet, but I think I will. And then I think once I do, you and I will be having a very different conversation. Do you think this ties into you becoming a delegated authority? You mentioned this to me in an email. I had no idea what that meant, but you said delegated authority means the insurers authorize me to quote and bind on their behalf which then means I can build the tech to do it for me as opposed to sitting at a computer all hours of the day because you were saying you do, quote, sales renewals, midterm adjustments, cancel it. Like you do all this, what I would, it's like busy work. It's admin work that really you as the founder of this business shouldn't be doing. So does it feel like that's going to be a turning point in, that could be a turning point in the business? Yes, it does for a variety of reasons. Firstly, with a delegated authority, I can actually create my own products and that's going to be really exciting. Instead of selling somebody else's, I can identify things that we can add in there that will serve our customers even better. So I'm excited about that. But also having the technology to do everything for me instead of me sitting at a computer at all hours of the day, processing quotes, you know, sending out renewals, binding people, people's policies when they've bought one. It will free up my time to then work on other areas of the business that will bring more value to people but also it will just free up my mind because I'm so tired of sitting there doing this work and I feel like I'm not getting an opportunity to to let my mind go to places where I'm thinking about new products or new services I'm finding as I've mentioned before that missing piece of the puzzle I feel like I'm I'm unable to figure out what that is right now because I'm just constantly consumed by doing all of that manual work. When I get my delegated authority and I have the technology to do it for me, yeah, that is going to free up my time and it's going to free up, give me some more mental freedom and space to, to come up with new products and services to bring more value. So I do think it's a really important step for the business. However, one thing I worry about is, Rob, you'll have um, come across these founders in the past and I've come across them too, where you know, maybe they, they build a product, they build an app and they have a handful of users and you're asking them how they're getting on and they say, yeah, yeah, things are fine. I'm just in the middle of refactoring the app so that, you know, it can scale just in case I miraculously get 20,000 new users overnight or they focus on building a massive new feature based on the request of one non-paying user and you from the outside looking in, look at that and think, this is not right. That's not what you should be doing. So I do worry, worry that I sound a bit like those founders when I'm like, as soon as I get my delegated authority, everything will fall into place. But I do think it's important just to free up time and help me get my life back and yeah, be able to start working on the important parts of the business that are going to help me deliver more value to freelancers. 
Right. And do you have anyone, you said you have a customer support person, I believe, helping you part-time, but it sounds like the stuff you're doing could potentially in the, in the short term be delegated to an admin assistant, an executive assistant, someone like that. But do they have to have a broker's license to do what you're doing? They don't have to have a license, but they do have to adhere to some regulatory stuff like, you know, there's just a certain amount of CPD and stuff that they have to do. But yeah, that that's going to help me enormously. I don't know why I haven't done it sooner. I've just been very resistant. I'm, I'm a bit of a control freak. You probably speak to a lot of founders like that where you just want to do things yourself because you know you're you're capable of it and you're worried that somebody else doesn't do as good a job as you. But at the same time, this is a really good stopgap between me getting the delegated authority is that I can still at least outsource a little bit, block off eight hours in my calendar that day to focus on working on the business. We haven't quite got to that stage yet because it's early days and she's just learning the ropes. So I reckon that this will pay off in another month or so. But I, I can honestly see myself getting to the stage where I'm like, why did I not do this sooner? Or, you know, even asking her to to do more hours. I'm really excited about that. Um, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, very common, right? Hard to let it go. They're not going to do it to get a job as I do is the, is the kind of refrain, the mental refrain. And then usually it's, why didn't I do that a year earlier or more? I kind of want to wrap us up with this story you were telling me offline about basically having a competitor steal all your stuff. And I'll just leave it at that, it, that vague description. And then, you know, you can share whatever you're, you, you feel comfortable sharing. I, and the reason I want to cover this is this has happened to me multiple times. This happens to a lot of founders. I've had probably two or three conversations with tiny seed founders in the last uh, probably nine months where they're like, this competitor is stealing all our crap and it's really bothering me. And usually as we, when we dig into it, it's like, yeah, they don't. They don't know what they're doing, so they're copying you because they, they don't know what is making you successful. So they think copying your font or your headline or your naming or your features or whatever is what it is, but it's not. It's the magic that you have, right? Usually that's the case, not always. But talk us through what happened, how, how that made you feel. I'm sure it's like made you feel like crap and, and then how it turned out. It's happened a couple of times, actually. But the, the sore one was the first time it happened because I think the first time it happens... It's a bit of a shock, right? But yeah, I, I I was the first provider on the market to focus specifically on freelancers. That obviously doesn't mean that I'm the only one that should be in that space. Other people are going to come in, but I was the first to do it. And um, I remember, I'm try, trying to think of the, the way that it happened. I remember my designers came to me and obviously you looked at with Jack's website and it's got a very distinctive design. And so they came to me and they were like, just a heads up, like a company approached us and they said that they're a competitor to you and that they want something similar to you. We just thought you should know. And so I took a note of it and um, I knew how hard it had been for me to to start this business with all of the regulatory and compliance stuff. So I wasn't too worried at the time. Then their name popped up again when I was having a chat with the insurer that I work with. And I realized oh, okay, I, I really have to, to look into these people a bit more. Then I, I looked into, just to see if I'd ever had any previous dealings with them, put their name into my, my inbox and it popped an email from them a few years before being like, hey, really interested in what you're doing. Would love to pick your brain sometime. 
And yeah, I had just realized that at that point they hadn't launched. So I didn't actually see the visual aspects of the website. But when it launched, there was definitely a lot of similarities. There's the whole, you know, nautical vibe going on too. And yeah, same insurer had tried to work with the same designers, same demographic going after the same market, a lot of similarities with the the design element of it too. And um, what really, really scared me at the time was that they had funding. And I just thought, well, this is it. This is it for me because I can't compete with that. They've got more resources, bigger team. And honestly, I was terrified about the whole experience. And I remember finding out about it when I was on holiday as well. And it just ruined, it ruined the holiday. I couldn't stop thinking about it. But fast forward and however many years later, and honestly, it ended up not impacting my business in the slightest. And um, I know that they actually had to to do a bit of a fire sale. You know, it's, it's just as, as an aside, I, I'm not fully convinced yet that funded um, insure techs, as they're called, is the route to go. Because um, obviously with funding, you need to get a lot of traction to show that you, you warrant that next round of funding. And with insurance, it's such a slow burner, as we've established with the way that my business has been growing. Even if you build the best company, the slickest onboarding, the nicest design, whatever, people do not feel that way about insurance, that they'll cancel their current provider and come flocking to whoever the new kid on the block is. So yeah, it, it didn't end up working out for them and they had to sell it. And it's a very similar story with the next startup that did a somewhat similar thing too. And it's quite cool that I feel like, yeah, me as a a one-person bootstrapped business is still here to tell the tale. And we really shouldn't be afraid of all these big, scary VC-backed businesses that try to come into our turf. It is often the case where bootstrapper, mostly bootstrapped startup, who's quite capital efficient, executing, getting customers, doing all the blocking and tackling, the SEO, the content, the cold outreach, closing sales, growing. They always want to go faster, but then they see the big funded competitor and they think, oh, no. This is a huge deal. More often than not, that funded competitor is less knowledgeable of the space, less experienced, and just has a bucket of money. And sometimes that bucket is half a million, sometimes it's two, three million. Unless they are prior founders or have some unique insight into the market, it's often kind of dumb money, for lack of a better term. And I don't mean dumb money. You know, there are people who say uh, smart money is from a VC or an angel investor who knows what they're doing, who's been in startups and dumb money is from a, a dentist or a doctor who's just writing dumb money. And that's not what I mean here. I mean, it's it's just money that's being pushed into a market in a way that's not, I'd say, not being deployed as surgically. Like, because if you, Ashley Baxter, had half a million dollars in funding versus no name, you know, clown who raises half a million dollars and doesn't know insurance. I mean, I'll say I'm no name clown. Like I could raise half a million dollars and say, I'm going to go, you know, compete with Ashley. And it would be really hard for me to do that because I don't have the years of experience that you do. And I don't have the patience. A lot of capital doesn't have patience, right? That's the, that's the, (laughs) the difference between like how I invest in tiny seed invest. It's like, it's very longer term. It's not like, oh, we need to get our money out and have an IPO and this and that. And you need to hit these growth targets or else we're not going to fund anymore. And that's often what happens. And at one point we, with Drip, we had a competitor raise buckets of money. And I remember telling my co-founder, I said, well, let's set an alarm for a calendar reminder for 18 months down the line and see if we can buy their assets when they close up shop. I mean, you know what? I was kind of joking and it happened. They ran out of money. They hired a bunch of people. They tried to build what we had plus some stuff. And it just, it didn't resonate fast enough. You know, they were trying to artificially accelerate growth 
And again, it's not all cases. There are cases when someone is actually quite smart, they know a space and they raise money, and then they're really dangerous. <laughs> then, then it's like you being funded in a space, right? Or it's like if I were to raise, let's say I raised 2 million bucks today to start another ASP, like as much as I don't want to do that, I would be kind of dangerous because I've been, I've been there. I'm a, you know, I'm a smart actor in that space. Yeah, I also think like if you raise that kind of money, though, you also have different intentions to what the bootstrap solo founder has. And I said that there's 2 million freelancers in the market. If you raise the amount of capital that these companies are raising, you're clearly making a statement to investors like we're going after the the big chunk of that 2 million. I have it in my head that I want to get to 10,000 customers. I just feel like that's a really nice manageable number. And so, you know, that's what I need to stay in business is very different to what they need to, to stay in business. But it's happened so often now, and it always has the same outcome, they either have to sell or they have to shut down. And so now even today, I noticed a quote come through on my website, and I had a look at you can sometimes tell people just put in false information because they're playing around with the UX. And um, but they use their real email address. And I put in their domain name to have a look. And it was obviously a new startup that's moving into my space and they were having a little look around and that's fine. But in the past, I would have freaked out and now I'm just like, cool, welcome to, to the space. Like, good luck. Yeah, <laughs> I, know, I got all the bumps and bruises. I know, what it's, uh, I know what it takes to stay alive here when many have not made it. Ashley, thanks so much for joining me today. Your Twitter handle is I am Ashley, which is with an E-Y at the end, and of course, with jack.co.uk if folks want to see what you're working on. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. It was really good to chat, and I hope that next time we catch up, I figured out what that missing piece of the puzzle is. I look forward to the day. It's going to be awesome. Thanks again to Ashley for coming on the show, and thank you for joining me this week and every week as we continue to produce this show for you. If you keep listening, we will keep shipping these episodes. And I look forward to being back in your ears again next Tuesday morning. Mm-hmm.